Welcome to Story Story Night, the city of Boise's cultural ambassador, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, three featured storytellers are intermixed with a community story slam. Today's featured stories are from Darian Renee, David Rush, and Chris Shanahan. This season, our themes are based on the buttons of an old tape recorder. In this episode, we are hitting the button to record. And three, two, it's story time. Good evening, and welcome to Story Story Night. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. This is our first show with themes based on the buttons of an old tape recorder. We begin with record. And so it seems appropriate that my opening remarks should be pre-recorded. That's right, we are starting with a recording. Tonight's show will include three featured storytellers intermixed with spontaneous stories from you in the audience. Why are you still even standing on stage? Do we even need you? If you want to share your five-minute story inspired by our theme, head over to the Slammer booth and add your name. Oh. So you think pointing at the Slammer booth justifies your existence, really? Before we go any further, let's begin by thanking our guest musician, Landonius. Hello, hello. (laughs) Sounds a little, did I fool you? Except for in the front row, maybe. Yeah, good. Uh, Landonius, welcome to Story Story Night. Yes, yes thank you thank for you having, having me. me. Absolutely. I, you have to pardon me. I have a little bit of a, a frog in my throat. Okay, Luckily, I don't. Most of my music is instrumental. So. I don't have the power to pardon, but uh, we'll we'll work with it. I appreciate the thought. Yeah, and um, we kind of chose you for this theme record because you are you use recording in a different way in your music. I do. I use what's called a looping pedal. And it records everything that I put into it and then repeats it back to me. I'll try that again. It records everything I put into it and then it repeats it back to me. Do you want to use this? Let me try it with that. It records everything I play into it and then it repeats it back to me. It records everything I play into it, and then it repeats. There it goes. It records everything I play into it, and then it repeats it back to me. And layer and layer and layer. It records everything I put on top to it, and then it repeats it back to me. I can layer and layer and layer. It records everything I put on top to it, and then. And how how many layers do you? You're first of all, you're making Lavona insane right now. Got to give her a good, a good, uh, good work here. <laughs> How many layers do you put to, in a typical piece? Um, can be anywhere from four to ten. All right, wow. Just, it varies. I do a lot of improvisation. Okay. So it's all totally self-indulgent, obviously. Yeah. Super cool. And speaking of Lavona, please, uh, happy to welcome our interpreters for the deaf and hard of hearing Lavona Andrew. And later you will also see Sierra McIver. And if you are a person who is deaf or hard of hearing and you would like to slam, we do have accommodations for that. Our interpreter will take a microphone out and will uh, speak your story into the mic. And you just do the same thing. Head over to the Slammer booth and uh, enter your name. Very good. 
this is my first opportunity to welcome you as the City of Boise Cultural Ambassador. That's a new thing. Wow. So the mayor chose us to help tell stories of the people of Boise. It supports the Boise's goal to be uh, to create a city for everyone and to highlight the inclusivity, celebrating the diversity of our human experience. That's what we try to do here at Story Story Night. And you're gonna hear a lot of diverse stories this evening. I also wanna thank our season sponsor back with us for the second year, the Shandro Group. And you've probably figured out our show sponsor tonight. Uh, you might be sitting on them. It's the Record Exchange. <laughs> yes. I know, how could they not be the show sponsor for a show called Record, right? It was a, a perfect match. And then we always like to thank our uh, story subscribers. Thank you to our story subscribers. Those are people who support us each month and get tickets to all our shows. We appreciate you being our base audience. Welcome back, some of you, for your second show this month. Excellent. Earlier we were at uh, Humble Pie at Late Night, Stories of Humility and Pie. That was a fun night. All right, now let's, uh, let's deal with the elephant in the room, which is this mustache. Uh, so I grew this out for a role that I had earlier in the fall uh, at Alley Repertory Theater, and I was planning to get rid of it right after the show. Well, first of all, I thought I was, the show was set in the 80s, and I thought I was going back in time, and then after I grew it out, I realized, oh, this is what people are wearing right now. Like, I've, I've actually caught up to the present day. Uh, but anyway, I was going to get rid of it right after the show, but then somebody uh, told me, like, oh my gosh, that mustache, it's totally a porn stash. <laughs> so I decided to keep it. <laughs> I might, I might uh, get rid of it a little later, though. Uh, but I did want a record of Where is our photographer, Christina? I, oh, you're right there. Okay, so we need to get this on record, right? Let's do, let's do this. The, um, what's my good mustache pose? All right, we got it. So that's one way you can record things is uh, with a uh, camera, but uh, so we got the photo. Another way you can record things is with an old tape deck. <laughs> this actually is, uh, I just recently purchased this on eBay, but the reason I selected it is because it is the same tape deck I had as a kid growing up. Uh, an old uh, General Electric, and it is the buttons or the order of the shows this season. So here we are at Record. And as a kid, I guess this was my version of YouTube as a kid. Uh, didn't broadcast to as big of an audience, maybe, but uh, the, uh, we would record commercials, fake commercials on here. Um, my sister and I would do recordings, I would do soundtracks for puppet shows <laughs> that I would play on it. Um, I actually did record a little commercial on it for tonight, so let's just go ahead and play that. The Record Exchange is Idaho's largest independent record store, celebrating 46 years of business in 2023. Located in downtown Boise at the corner of Idaho and 11th Streets, the Record Exchange specializes in new and used vinyl, CDs, home video, electronics, unique gifts, and espresso brewed with homegrown flying in beans. And they also feature uh, local musicians and national tours, as well as international stars. Including right daily events during the annual Tree Fort Music Fest. I guess there's more. All right. 
A little commercial for you there from our show sponsor, The Record Exchange. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, the inspiration for the season this year. But I do actually have a recording story. And this is our 14th season. And this story um, happened right before I turned 14. Uh, I, I had just done a little school musical. Uh, and uh, my character, well, the show was called Kids Praise for Sensational Servants. So I went to a private Christian school, and that was the entertainment. Um, <clears throat> and it was a series of four. Now, previous to that, I'd played a songbook. Uh, but for this particular show, I'd kind of moved to a different position. Uh, it was a part that was supposed to be Charity Church Mouse, who was a gospel singer. And uh, I, my prepubescent voice was so high that I could sing all of those notes with no problem. So all we had to do was change Charity Church Mouse to Charlie Church Mouse, and we were all set. We were ready to go. And so we did the performance. Uh, my voice shot up into the stratosphere. And afterwards, uh, apparently there was someone in the audience who had some kind of record company uh, producing company, and they reached out to my parents and said, you know, we normally don't use 13-year-olds, but we were so impressed with your son's range and his vocal ability, we'd like to try him out. So could you do a demo tape that just has a song on it that we can take in and see if maybe we do some kind of recording using your son, which was super exciting. So my dad had a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck set up downstairs in our basement with the microphone and the headset. I had another uh, instrumental track for a song called In His Time. And we thought, OK, this is going to be my demo track for this recording company. So I put on the headphones. And I'm we, my dad starts the track. He hits record, starts going. I hear the intro go by, and I start to sing. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time, but it was not beautiful. Uh, in that very week, my voice started to change. <laughs> and I lost complete control of it. It, I couldn't, it wasn't just that I couldn't reach notes, I, I couldn't even get the frequency. It was like I shot on each side of the note, or it would shoot up really high and then down really low. No control. I was kind of horrified. I didn't sing again. Uh, not a single note for after that moment until uh, one night, my dad came home, and he was acting a little sheepish. And I was like, hmm, what's up with this guy? And he comes up, and he pulls out a cassette tape. And he says, hey, I was at the Christian Supply over on Fairview, and I picked up this soundtrack for this Christmas song, Christmas is Coming Up. I thought maybe you'd want to sing it at church, maybe give it a try. So I popped it in, and my voice had would stabilized. I could sing again. <laughs> and I actually uh, found the suitcase down in my garage, and in it are all of those little soundtracks, and this is the tape that he brought to me. Uh, well, I've just got this GE thing. Should I put it in and see what it, it's almost Christmas. Okay. Now remember, this is 36 years ago. 
I wonder if it says the published date on here. Well, because it was 36 years ago, I can't read any of that writing. <laughs> oh, remember this trick? <laughs> well, I can't touch those pencils. <laughs> I'm under, so yeah, you use a pencil to wind it up. Okay, I'm getting tired. All right, let's see what this sounds like. It's gonna be real good sound quality. Standing here beside the manger Looking at this little stranger Wondering if he'll be like other boys Looking down across tomorrow Knowing there will be some sorrow I still know he'll bring 10,000 joys. You know, I can't remember lyrics to songs I sang last month, and... <laughs> I remember all the words to that song. Strangely, uh, this is, says 10,000 joys duet, but I sang it as a solo. So I wonder, um, yeah, I, so I, music became an important part of my life again. And I continued to record. I guess my biggest recordings, uh, well, ironically, the recording that I have the most exposure from is me performing as a prepubescent boy. Uh, for a production uh, television show called Lazy Town, where I played an eight-year-old kid named Stingy. And uh, I just looked it up yesterday to see, and it's weird because the numbers are all matching up tonight, because this, uh, so the song sounds a little, the voice is like this. This mailbox is mine, and this triagonal sign. It has 14 million views on that particular YouTube <laughs> channel. Uh, so that has the most recordings, but I do wonder if my dad hadn't shown up with that with that cassette that one night if I would ever have sung again. So when he, him giving me that tape uh, started me off on, an, on another path or returned to a path. And as the cultural ambassador of Boise, and this is Giving Tuesday, uh, we've decided to spend a little bit of time tonight thinking about the culture of giving. So uh, I invited, some of you may have seen downstairs an unusual box in the lobby, uh, it, a giving station. And here to tell us something about that is the executive director of the Idaho Community Foundation, uh, Steve Burns. So he'll tell us a little bit about that. Welcome, Steve. All right, well, thank you. Thanks for having me here tonight. But I guess before I start talking about that box in the lobby, I guess I'd like to just spend a minute telling you about a guy who passed away recently, his name was Jeffrey Holt, and he lived in Hinsdale, New Hampshire. And he had lived there for most of his life, and he lived an interest, a very simple life. He was the caretaker at the mobile, park, mobile home park where he lived, 
Um, the guy wore threadbare clothes, hardly any furniture in his trailer that he lived in. Literally the legs on the bed in his bedroom went through the bottom of the floor. He'd given up driving a car and he would drive around town on his lawnmower, including to the convenience store. And he would kind of sit on the side of the road reading the paper and neighbors would wave to him as they went by. So imagine how surprised the people in Hinsdale, New Hampshire were when after he passed away, they found out that he had left the town $3.8 million in his will. And before he passed, he had arranged to set up what's called a charitable fund with the New Hampshire Community Foundation. And now that fund every year is going to generate about $150,000 that will go towards community projects, but it will do it forever. And I tell you that little story tonight because that is normally what we do at the Idaho Community Foundation. Now, not all of the fund holders that we work with have the same story as Jeffrey, but they, we work with people from around the state to set up those charitable funds to help take care of their hometown and the causes and the things that are important to them and their family. We have about 700 of those funds now. And last year, they generated about $12.3 million that went to all 44 of Idaho's counties, over $175 million since we began this in 1988. But we get all over the state, and we know that the need in this state is greater than ever before. The cool part is the opportunities in this state are bigger than ever before. And it's perfect that I'm here tonight because we think that part of our job is to help grow a culture of giving or a culture of philanthropy in Idaho. If we're going to have thriving communities in this state, then we need a more robust philanthropy, a, a better culture of giving. And so we decided to try something a little bit different. We need to involve more people. And we realize that not everyone can set up a charitable fund with us. And so the question becomes, how do you involve some of the new Idahoans? 500,000 people have moved here in the last five years. How do we get them involved in the culture of giving? How do we get younger people? How do we get people who've never thought about philanthropy before involved? And so this morning, we unveiled that box in the lobby. We call it the Idaho Community Foundation's Giving Station. And it is a vending machine that we have converted into a giving station. Instead of going up and getting your cookies or your chips, instead it is filled with donation cards. And they have a value of 10 and 15 and $25. And when you go up and buy one of those donation cards, you are making a donation to one of the 24 nonprofits featured inside and all of those nonprofits are local nonprofits from right here in the Treasure Valley. So we're hoping that this works. We hope that it really takes off. This concept has been done in other places and it's been very successful. Because if it's successful here, then we plan on getting some more of these giving stations and taking them to every single county around the state in order to help build that culture of giving. Jeffrey Holt understood that community does not happen by accident. It happens because we make a decision to have nice communities. And so I invite all of you, if you haven't seen it yet, to go check it out. 
swipe your credit card, help take care of the community that is important to you, is important to your family. And thanks a lot for having me here tonight. Okay, now I have my head in the world of children's television, and so when I saw Steve Burns on the list of speakers tonight, uh, I was remembering that Steve Burns is the name of the actor of Steve from Blue's Clues, the original actor. I was like, oh, I didn't know he was gonna be in town. <laughs> be a little reunion with the children's TV people. Uh, okay, thank you so much for that. And uh, that giving station is gonna be here at Jump at least through December, so it, I think it'll be here for our next show too. So, structure of show, Story Story Night, is three featured storytellers intermixed with a community story slam. The community story slam is you guys, you individuals who go over there and put your name on a ticket. We do ask that it is your name and not someone sitting next to you or across the room. Uh, that usually works out better. Uh, but we are gonna bring our featured storytellers up here. Uh, when you're a slammer, it's five minutes on a theme record, but you can relate it in different ways. Uh, so I'm going to bring our featured storytellers up in reverse order. Uh, a man who has been recording Boise, Chris Shanahan. Then we also have a man with many records, uh, David Record-Breaking Rush. And first up to the microphone is a woman who was given a very big recording opportunity. Please welcome to the microphone. Are, are people moving toward me? I see two people. All right. Chris is coming up. Here we go. Uh, coming up to the mic for her first time at Story Story Night, sharing her story. Please welcome Darian Renee. Now, when most people hear that I'm a professional musician or producer, they tend to assume that I still live in my parents' basement or a van down by the river. And let's be honest, my mother is a lovely woman, thank you, and van life on Greenbelt Riverfront property? <laughs> Way too expensive. But I do well. I make records. That's Music industry, record, short for recording. An album is a record. A CD is a record. A tape cassette is a record. A single song is a record. I record, therefore, I make records. Now, my story is about the most peculiar record I've ever made. Um, and it started not too far from here. Um, in my career, I've been fortunate enough to record in several huge commercial recording studios. And when I first started, I was recording anywhere I could get into. Spare bedrooms, offices, a well-padded closet. Um, similar to Jody, I actually listened to some recordings recently due to the theme that I had done as a teenager. And let me say, they are not good. Um, I've come a long way. Uh, my story tonight begins not too far from here. I had a studio on the corner of 10th and Idaho in the historic Idenhaw building. 
a historic hotel, which is now apartments. Um, at the time, 2016, they were leasing the building with commercial spaces, so of course, I jumped at the chance. The fact that it was a commercial recording studio was a complete secret. Nobody knew what I was really doing in my office, except for my property manager and the artists who came out to record with me. I turned it into a game, really. I felt like the Phantom of the Opera in there. Residents and visitors could hear the faint sounds of music, but didn't really know where it was coming from. I would walk up to the building and hear excited whispers as I climbed the steps of people wondering if they might catch an earful of the music today. And as far as I could tell, nobody was really upset about it. They were excited. Still, I told nobody. My studio was located through a maze of hallways in the building. It was very hard to get to, but if you knew, you knew. So, after I had first moved in, I received a really exciting opportunity that almost passed me by. I was brand new in the building. Picture an apartment or an office that nobody has moved into. The floors were bare, the walls were empty, furniture barely there, boxes were not unpacked. I was sitting crisscross applesauce without Wi-Fi even, so the email almost passed me by, except for the fact that I had a hotspot on my phone. I was sitting on the floor on my laptop, checking my email, when I receive a couple of nonchalant sentences from a filmmaker that I had never even heard of. And in those sentences, he said, hello Darian, we're making a movie based around a very famous rock band that you have heard of. And we were wondering if you might like to contribute to the soundtrack by choosing a song from this artist from their massive catalog of hits. And I almost stopped in my tracks, fell out of my chair, and thought that it was a total joke. And I looked into this person, the filmmaker, and realized the email address came from a very legit domain. And it was actually a friend of a friend. At the time, I was working on a lot of soundtracks, so it wasn't uncommon for me to receive this kind of offer. With jitters racing through me, my fingertips flying across the keyboard, I excitedly responded, yes, immediately, and barely remembered to ask, oh yeah, by the way, who's the band? No big deal, they might as well have said. We're making a biopic of the legendary rock band Queen to be titled Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, my response was, must have broken a record for the fastest response. I agreed immediately on the spot. Great, they said, you'll be paid for your time and you'll be paid for the final product, whether we use it or not. I was so excited, I wouldn't have cared what Queen song they asked me to recreate. Now, at the time, for those who haven't seen the film, spoiler alert, they end up using the original album from the band. At the time, they weren't sure if they would be able to license Queen's entire catalog. So they had this creative workaround where they were going to ask different bands and artists to make a compilation album of sorts, everybody covering a different Queen song to be used in the background of the film. But they said to me, of all people, 
They said, you're one of the first artists we're reaching out to. Which Queen song would you like to record? And I jumped at the chance to record the title track of the movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. Great, they said. We're working on a tight deadline. Can you have it to us by Friday? <laughs> it was Wednesday. Sure, I said professionally, absolutely, no problem. And I got to work. The countdown began, 48 hours. Now, it was afternoon on Wednesday when I got the email, and I spent the rest of the afternoon just learning the song, learning all the instrument parts, because I didn't have time to call up any other musicians that I know, and luckily, I had a whole studio that was still in boxes that I quickly started to unpack to make my deadline and began learning every single instrument to the song Bohemian Rhapsody, bass guitar, two guitar parts at least, keys, drums, not to mention the vocals, which I analyzed part by part that afternoon. And by the time I finally felt comfortable with the track, the sun had gone down. And I remembered that I was technically recording in an apartment building. So to be practical, I decided I would go home, get a good night's eight hours of rest if I could, and come back the next morning to start the actual recording. I get up at 5 a.m. the next day, Thursday, and I was too excited to get any more sleep like a kid before Christmas. So I race back down to the studio and I begin tracking parts. I put my headphones on, really mindful not to wake my neighbors living in the Idenha building as this project was so important that I didn't want anybody to come in and find out what I was working on. So with all the hope in my heart, I had my headphones on in my little studio in the Idenha and I began tracking each part. The drums, I tapped furiously on my computer keyboard because I am not a drummer. So that, in my perspective, was the least dynamic element of the track because they weren't real. I didn't really play the drums. However, I did really play the bass, the guitar, and multiple other layers on this track. When it was all said and done, the instruments, and it came time to do the singing on the record, I actually went back and re-recorded the guitar solos uh, because I wasn't, I didn't find myself to be a great guitarist at the time, but I felt really confident in my ability to play the keys. So the guitar solos that I spent so long learning how to play, I went back and read it on the keys. I regret nothing. It was the best choice for that record. Then came time to do the vocals. I'd probably spent 12 hours out of my 48 recording just the instruments, and I was just hoping to God that by the time I got on the microphone and started the Galileo, 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 that none of my neighbors would come over knocking on the door or worse, call the police. Luckily, I didn't hear any complaints, even though I must have tracked that part like 60 times. Again, sorry, neighbors. 
I spent so much time making sure all of the vocals were perfect. And what really took the most time was probably the mixing and mastering, the part after you get done recording, when you make sure that everything sounds high quality, like it's really going into a movie about Queen and not like you recorded it in the back of an apartment building. I did my best to make it sound as high quality as possible. On a deadline, that's very hard to do. I consider myself to be a recovering perfectionist. And I knew I didn't really have the time to go through every bit and piece of this record and make sure it was perfect. You just can't do that when you're on a timeline. So I let good enough be good and called it a finished product probably at hour 47 of my 48 hours. I waited until the last possible minute to hit send on that email when I finally sent them the finished track with all the hope in my heart that I had done a good enough job to be really utilized on this massive soundtrack. I hit send and I waited for a response. Now, my emails thus far had gone back and forth so quickly that I thought the whole process was gonna happen overnight. I thought that I would send this off, if they loved it, it would go to print the next day. An overnight success, as we all suspect. Unfortunately, that was not the case. I sent it off, they said, great, we love it, we're gonna use it, we'll be in touch. A few weeks of following up, I learned that I couldn't expect more than a we'll be in touch. I had a mix of emotions. I felt relieved and accomplished that I had actually finished the project. I did the thing. And now was the waiting game where I was just twiddling my thumbs, waiting to find out what the result would be and if my song would end up in the movie. Well. About six months later, I saw a Facebook post from the major studio that produced the movie announcing that they had their final cast and that they would be using Queen's original music in the film. I knew at that point it was game over and my cover of Bohemian Rhapsody was not going to be on the soundtrack. I was devastated. I was so disappointed, but at the same time, a little bit relieved because the track wasn't perfect. I had done it in a rush. I somehow took on the insane task of recreating Bohemian Rhapsody in 48 hours. I was a little bit relieved that the world wasn't going to hear it on the soundtrack. <laughs> but I thought, well, on the bright side, if I really wanted to, I could go back and polish up those sections that weren't very good. I could go back and perfect those little, little mistakes I made in the record, and then I could release it on my own. Did I release it on my own? Yes. Did I go back and perfect anything? No, I didn't. Because after spending 46 hours straight on that record, the last thing I wanted to do was revisit it. So that record, which I did end up releasing independently, helped me find the beauty in imperfections. And it helped me 
capture the magic of the moment and feel good and comfortable with releasing that into the world without it being completely perfect. What's the difference between real life and fantasy? For me, it's what I record. Thank you. And Darian is actually the musical director for the upcoming production at Alley Repertory Theater. The most banned musical of all time. Do you know what that is? Hair. Yes, hair. Exactly. I am. Uh, I tried growing mine out for it, but I, they, apparently they weren't into gray hair for this one. So, and I think you're playing an instrument in the show too, right? The bass. Oh, like a stand-up bass? No. Sideways bass. Okay. Well, I'm a little sideways too, I guess. All right, very good. Um, do you know what color, you know, when you hit record in a studio, what color the light turns? Mm, the level of detail, ladies and gentlemen, the level of detail. So continuing our uh, culture of giving, we actually invited some community members to record some little tidbits on our tape player here. And here's one from a guest uh, that comes to the show occasionally. And on this Giving Tuesday, I want to share why I made a donation to support Story Story Night, Boise's new cultural ambassador, in honor of my daughter, Darcy Valverde. Her entire life has given, she has given to others, not for any particular reason, just because of her loving, giving nature. She and her husband, Ricardo, so enjoy Story Story Night that I couldn't think of a better way to honor her giving nature than by giving to Story Story Night for all they give to our community. They help make Boise a more interesting city to visit and to live in. I sincerely hope that each of you will show your gratitude for this fine organization by making a donation, especially tonight on Giving Tuesday. By the way, I live in Indiana and always try to schedule my visits with my daughter to coincide with another great Story Story Night performance. Thank you, Nancy Klingle. Thank you, Nancy. And her daughter is here tonight. If she's not too embarrassed to stand up after that, Darcy, where are you, Darcy? There she is. Oh, and they've got their t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you, that was fun. All right, let's do a slammer from our slammer box here. This is, uh, I call your name, you have five minutes to come up to the mic. Remember, this is a PG-13 show, so keep that in mind uh, for the language and content of your story. And when your five minutes are over, I will start lurking nearby. Oh, okay, I see, there's tickets sticking out of tapes. I will pick, uh, he looked beyond my faults. And who is looking beyond my faults? None other than Alex Hayden. Alex, come on up. Hi, Alex. 
like we're about the same height, actually. There we go. Perfect. All right. Hi. So um, I'm going to share a rap song I wrote. Um, it's been recorded, but I'm going to share it a cappella here. It's kind of my life story and the summation of my life lessons up until this point. Um, as a kid, I always I grew up on rap. Uh, I know I'm a white guy, and that's not uh, very regular, but um, yeah, I loved it, and I always wanted to create it. And so about two years ago, I finished my first rap song, and it's called Freedom. And if you'd like to hear it, uh, here you go. So um, there's a little bit of a beat. You guys can help out if you want. It, it goes like this. It's like boom, 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 freedom, doom, 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 freedom, doom, 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 freedom, doom, 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 freedom. Most of my life, I never felt free, caged and trapped. I just wanted to be fit, hip, cool, and wealthy. Instead, I stayed stuck in insecurity. First, I was fat, at least that's what I thought. Other kids made fun, I was often distraught. Could never really tell if they liked me or not. Got so down on myself that I even forgot who I am, who I was, or that I was loved. Long story short, fell off into drugs. Started hanging out with dealers and thugs until I became one looking for love. Then I found out, had one on the way by the rebound chick. No idea what to say. Thought I hit rock bottom when my mom passed away. Then judge said, you go to prison today. Freedom, freedom, two more verses, freedom, okay, man, I'm nervous, here we go. Bar slammed shut on the doors of the prison. Started to see I lived my life as a victim. Y'all might think, yo, this sounds like the ending. I'm about to show you how it's just the beginning. Next thing that happened is I spoke with the chaplain. He told me, yo, son, there's a reason this happened. God has a plan, man. You're destined for rapping. I took that to heart, and I got into action. Started running, started reading, started lifting, started eating, started doing everything that I knew my body needed. Heard the call, and I heeded. Mistakes won't be repeated. Decided once and for all, I will not be defeated. Woo! <laughs> Now life feels fully free. Had a wife I'd love to see. Two girls can't wait to see just who they gonna be. Do work that I love, make a difference that I can see. Now I'm writing rhymes to show you who you can be. Freedom. All right, we'll skip the, the chorus on that one. <laughs> Last verse, here it goes. All right, this is sliding down. Now it's time for me to preach. Full freedom's within your reach. Regardless of what you see, think, feel, or believe. Your pocket got the key. Let's unlock it and go and see the life that there could be. The lessons I learned were three. First, you are worthy, enough just as you be, your true identity beyond the worth of money. Deserving of everything that would cause your heart to sing, that would cause your mind to ring, was possible anything. Second lesson is to truly drop into this, the deep desire within, what for you would be a win. For me, feeling fit, lovely wife and a couple kids, for you, tune into this, your desires are your gifts. Now for number three, it's practical alchemy, desire to reality flows from who you be. So from love and consciously create identity, now you are free to create reality. Freedom. All right. That might be the first time we've had rap at our show. And uh, Sierra, please, uh, if you need a towel or a drink of water. She's like, how did I get, how did I get that one? Wow, okay, that was wild. Uh, so Alex isn't as free as he was. We're making him sign our release form over there. Uh, we won't release it as a record, record album. It'll just be part of our podcast. All right, we're going to... Uh, Move on to our second featured storyteller, and uh, this is, uh, well, how did I introduce him? I said he was a man with many records, so please welcome David Record Breaking Rush.
I was eight years old when my papa had a stroke. It was my mom's dad. Little did I know that this would lead to the most difficult record I would ever attempt to break. We spent the summer driving between Boise and Sandpoint in northern Idaho and then over to Seattle where my uncle had a retail store. When he was entertaining my brother and I in the warehouse, he gave us each three bean bags. And I don't remember who suggested juggling first. I just remembered I figured out the pattern on the floor and my brother got it working in the air. Well, it took him just three days to learn. It took me the entire summer. But each time I juggled a few seconds longer, it was the longest I had ever juggled. By the time I got to junior high, I won the talent show and I could juggle for several minutes at a time, which was the longest I had ever juggled. When I went to college at MIT, there were two very intense four-month semesters. And then there was also a January term. And instead of taking a difficult class, I took juggling PE. <laughs> I juggled for hours every day, throwing the balls in the air tens of thousands of times and dropping them almost as many. <laughs> And at the end of my freshman year, my fraternity took a, a trip out to Six Flags, New England to commemorate and celebrate. When I was sitting in the 15-passenger van, I realized I didn't have anything better to do. So why don't I try to see how long I can juggle for? 36 minutes later, I'd found out. It was the longest I had ever juggled. In 2005, during Thanksgiving break for college, my oldest brother invited us out to uh, Seattle for Thanksgiving. I said yes, bought my tickets, and only then did he tell me he was planning to run a half marathon that weekend. <laughs> Being the competitive younger brother, there was no way I could go out there and then not run that half marathon. I had enough time to take two training runs around the Boston Bridge Loop system, a five and a seven miler, but I didn't, I didn't want to just run that half marathon. I wanted to see if I could do it while juggling. <laughs> I ran it an hour and 47 minutes and only dropped the balls three times. But I, I realized I had to stop at the aid stations to get food and water uh, because you're not allowed to progress forward without juggling if you're following the rules. When my wife wanted to run Roby Creek here in Boise in 2014, I told her, I'll run it with you. And when I got to the start line, I realized, hey, I don't have to stop juggling for food and water if you feed me. And so I said, hey, well, at the rate stations, will you feed me food and water? And so we ran up the hill. We were almost to the top of the hill when my wife was feeding me a banana an hour and 48 minutes into the race, and I dropped a ball. <laughs> but that was the longest I had ever juggled. But I realized then I didn't want my achievements just to be written on a sticky note in my living room. I wanted to record them officially to inspire others. And so I set out to break my very first Guinness World Records title for the longest duration blindfolded juggling. The records took at six minutes, 29 seconds. I was here in the Basque block in Boise in front of my coworkers, several hundred watching with a big timer in the background. When I passed the six minute, 29 second mark, they all started cheering. I got so excited, I immediately overthrew and dropped a ball. <laughs> but I'd broken the record by five seconds. Another record I wanted to break was for the furthest distance traveled on foot while juggling continuously. Guinness set the minimum mark at 15 miles. The rules were you have to be moving forward the entire time. You also have to be juggling the entire time. No stops, no drops, no catching two balls in the same hand or it's over. But the rule that really irked me is they said no one's allowed to feed you food or water. <laughs> no wife feeding me bananas this time. And so I had to wear a camelback, 
with the backpack on with an electrolyte solution and water with a hose clamped in my mouth the entire time. I made it 118 laps around the Centennial High School track. That's 29 miles of continuous running and juggling, five hours and 21 minutes before I dropped a ball. And that's the longest I had ever juggled. Now when I applied for the record for the longest duration juggling in 2017, I knew it would be tough, but I didn't realize it would be the toughest record I'd even attempted. It stood at 12 hours, five minutes. Continuous juggling, no stops, no drops. I made my first attempt in 2022. I set a deadline of three weeks before my daughter's due date because I knew once we had an infant, it was gonna to be too crazy to try to make a 12-hour attempt. I got all the timers, witnesses, video evidence, photographic evidence, the SD cards all erased, the batteries plugged in, the live stream going, the cameras up, and all of the stuff it takes to make a Guinness World Records title attempt official. And I started juggling that morning. Three and a half hours into the attempt, my wife sent a note to the neighbor who was there from the hospital <laughs> saying, I'm not coming home until we have a baby. <laughs> I was standing there three and a half hours in the attempt juggling, thinking through all the logistics of everything that it took to put this together. And I'm a little ashamed. It took me several minutes to come to the realization I could not wait another nine hours before going to the hospital. <laughs> so I packed up and I went to the hospital and came home with a beautiful baby girl. <laughs> a few months later, when things had settled down, I made my third record attempt. I was 10 hours, 53 minutes into the attempt, when two balls collided and fell to the floor. No! <laughs> I had to close my eyes, take some deep breaths. I'm reliving that moment right now, actually. <laughs> I was devastated. 10 hours and 53 minutes. The only thing that got me through is, man, someday this is gonna make a good story. <laughs> I wanted to make an attempt right away, but I'd ripped the arms in my muscles, in my arm. I'd ripped the muscles in my arms, and my brain was completely fried. <laughs> and it took several months to heal. On my third attempt, I was 10 hours and 23 minutes in, and then there was a ball on the floor. And I didn't understand why there was a ball on the floor. I'd just been doing this repetitive action so long that I was so dizzy, so out of it, I didn't realize what had happened. I, I, I actually then watched the video back and I still didn't realize why there was a ball on the floor. I watched it in slow motion, couldn't figure out what went wrong, frame by frame analysis. My hand had the ball in it. My hand moved up, did not let go of the ball, and went back down. After 125,000 throws in a row, I simply forgot to throw a ball. <laughs> that time I only waited a week to make my fourth attempt at this record. I was coming up on the 10-hour mark, thinking, no, I'm starting to get nervous. I made it 10 and a half hours and my heart started palpitating, my arms started turning wobbly, and this is the most likely thing to make me drop a ball while I'm juggling. I had to wear a camelback because uh, I had to get enough fluid to last 12 hours of continuous juggling. I drank 3,000 calories worth of high protein chocolate milk and protein powder. My neck was burning, my arms were in pain, my legs were searing, my, 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 
my brain was fried and I'm watching this infinity pattern of the balls going back and forth and back and forth. It's like looking at that concentric spiraling circle of black and white spirals as it spins for 30 seconds and you look away at Vincent van Gogh's starry night and the world feels like it's palpitating back and forth and that's what I felt like after staring at these balls for 11 and a half hours. I was terrified. 11 hours, 45 minutes and I was still going. I was shaking. I was coming up on that 12 hour mark thinking, please, no, not this time. I was terrified. 12 hours, four minutes, 45 seconds. The record was 12 hours, five minutes. <laughs> I was staring at the ball so intensely, I had no idea where I was. My boys who were there with my wife, they're two young boys were looking at me and after a while they said, congratulations daddy, you broke the record. And I finally felt a wave of relief rush over me. I was able to juggle for another hour and five minutes because I was so relaxed. And after 13 hours, 10 minutes, five seconds, I finally dropped a ball ending the attempt. And that's the longest I or anyone in recorded history has ever juggled. Now, I know camel, they're called camelbacks? Yeah. I know camelbacks give, but do they also receive? Because 13 hours, I don't know. When someone, oh, thank you. Actually, I have a better one for a rim shot. When someone tells me I've dropped the ball, they're talking about something entirely different. There we go. All right, oh. I asked David what, what organization is important to him, and he is actually on the board for the Discovery Center, and so I reached out to one of the big donors that's into STEM uh, education and the Discovery Center, and he recorded this for us. Uh, David hasn't heard this, I don't think. Well, I know you haven't, because I just recorded it. <laughs> and I give to the Discovery Center of Idaho because of the importance of STEM education in our world. The more effectively we can educate our kids about science and technology, the more equipped they will be to solve the huge problems facing our planet now and those that are coming in the next decades. Think globally and act locally. All right, thank you, Chris. Thank you. And uh, I think you'll be excited to learn that uh, David is going to try and break his record tonight. Uh, so settle in. <laughs> if you have a babysitter during intermission, give him a call. Because we're going to be here until dawn. Uh, no, uh, we're going to try to do something special after intermission here involving pencils. Uh, I don't know, do we want to set up what you're going to do now, or should we wait until after? Well, we're not going to do it now. We're going to do it after emission, but what is it we're trying to do? The most pencils snapped in one minute. The most pencils snapped in one minute. That's after intermission, so you want to stick around for that. 
Okay. We have a lot going on during your mission. I'll tell you more about that, too. But uh, I'm going to turn over to Landonius because this became a regular bit uh, last season. Landonius, do you have any uh, music appropriate for underscoring a message from in, uh, related to insurance? Insurance? Uh, I could probably make something up. Great. That's what we're doing right now. Okay. The Chandro Group knows there is a difference between offering your employees insurance and benefits. From our first conversation to day-to-day -day benefits management, we use data-driven and culture-focused methods for designing your benefits portfolio. We know no other program in a business can impact employees' financial, emotional, and physical well-being more than employee benefits. The Shandro Group. Oh, that was lovely. I mean, they could use that on the radio. Thank you. All right, uh, we have a lot going on during intermission tonight. We're going to lower the screen, and then eventually uh, we will project on there. This is something that's kind of fun to do, uh, where you can text giving culture. Is that right? Hopefully it'll tell us. Uh, <laughs> to 44321 on your phone. That means you open up your messaging app, and you say two four four three two one, and then you type the message, "Giving Culture." I think it is, and um, you can make a donation, and your name will appear up on the screen. Uh, and it'll take us a little while to get that running, uh, but I thought it would be quite exciting if we added a little bit extra to that. And so, oh look, there it is. Be the first. Wow, it hasn't even started yet. Oh, uh, it's Give Culture. Ignore what I said before. It's <laughs> shorter than that. It's Give Culture to 44321. And uh, because Steven is not a Macintosh person, and our file is on a Macintosh computer, I have to run back to the back. And what we're going to do is during intermission, you will be able to hear the one-woman version of Bohemian Rhapsody by our very own Darian Renee. And while that's happening, you can frantically get your name up on the screen, and uh, that will be our Giving Tuesday campaign. So we'll take, you can also refresh your drinks. If you haven't picked up your t-shirt or your tote bag, I think there's someone out front at um, the desk out there to pick up those They're from pre-orders. You can pre-order those when you order your tickets. And we'll be back in a few minutes, 10 to about 10 minutes, to start our second <laughs> If I make it that long. Our second act. Thank you so much. All right, so this is our challenge. Uh, the best storytelling is when the stakes are clear, and I can't think of a clearer way to say I'm gonna try to break, more, well, actually, I don't know the details. <laughs> uh, how many, he's busy. Uh, how many pencils do we have to break? And someone look that up online. <laughs> How many pencils do we have to break? Oh, here you are. Okay. I'll do a little yeah. introduction. We're going to make an official Guinness World Records title attempt tonight. And I like to joke, it's Guinness Book Approved You Did It. And so there's all these rules you have to follow, all the witnesses, timekeepers. Um, the pencils 
ha have to be commercially available, standard wooden hexaconal HB pencils with uh, proof of commercial availability. You gotta be seven and a half inches long, snapped with the hands only. So I can't like hold them on the table and smash them off. Uh, just the hands, can't use the body or the knee or anything like that. And um, it's gonna be videoed from, you know, camera on that side, camera on that side, camera from the other side, camera follow me along. 110 in a minute is the current record. So that's almost two per second. I've held this record once before when I got 95. Uh, it's since been broken, it's now 110. It's right at the edge of my limit. If I have a good run, I'll get it. If not, I'll have a you know second, third, and fourth attempt like the longest duration juggling. Probably not today, but we're gonna give it one solid go today. Um, and so I'm gonna start doing the um, rules verification on film because Guinness requires it be like measured and stuff on film. And then we got a timers over here. With stopwatches, they're gonna be allowed three, two, one, go. On go, I'm gonna start snapping all the pencils. When it hits one minute, we're gonna hear a loud stop from over there. And then we've gotta take all the pencil halves and put them on the table if I've broken it. I'll do a count while I'm going. If it's over 110, we're gonna count them all up. If it's less than 110, I'll say give it the college try and we'll uh, go on to the next story. All right, so we'll get the cameras rolling now. I think I got 110, which would tie the existing record, which does count as an official Guinness World Records title. Whew. All right. So you have to save all, do you have to save all of these? Oh, you have to look at all of them right now. Oh my goodness, okay. And you, if, uh, of course, couldn't see this out there, but I believe David has a piece of pencil paint in his eyelash. <laughs> it's kind of yellow pencil. Oh. Everything is being recorded. I'm not sure I allotted the time for this part of the world record. <laughs> I, was, uh, <laughs> I was like, great, a record in a minute. That would be perfect for our show. <laughs> it's <laughs> becoming like a New York minute where <laughs> It takes about six years to prepare that New York Minute. 
Well, once it's all official, I don't know, maybe people can take uh, a commemorative pencil piece when they leave tonight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Once it's all official, you can all come up and get your commemorative pencil or pencil pieces. Feel free to take them home. You can have double-ended pencils or short ones with an eraser. But there's only uh, 110, well, 220. That might be just enough if you only take one half. Actually, they're doing a pretty good job of assembling these pencils. Landonius is doing some very good pencil sorting music. There are shards of splintered wood all over the floor. And he's bleeding. Oh, wow. Okay. We also have a biohazard here in the front. I don't, know, I don't know if you could hear him breathing once he got halfway around the table. That was, that was an added sensory experience for us up here on stage. We're checking under the stage to make sure there aren't any stray pencil pieces. Oh, we're missing an eraser piece. Oh good, there's someone at the slammer booth. That's... Oh, she's a volunteer. <laughs> I need her to volunteer to tell a story. Oh, someone's coming up with an important message. All right, we're gonna count what we have on the table. This is all being recorded. A hundred and ten! All right, congratulations. And if any of you have a pencil with an eraser on the end under your chair, please bring it to the front of the stage. Woo, well, that was exciting. We broke a Guinness World Book of Record. We had many witnesses for that. I think that should count for something. Uh, David has been on several, uh, he was on America's Got Talent this summer with uh, Howie Mandel doing fist pumps. Uh, world record for the number of fist pumps in a minute, too, wasn't it? Uh, Howie Mandel, of course, is very germ conscious, so you can imagine how that went over. Uh, and on morning shows and things, and he has a book out in the lobby that you can also get, I think, after the show. So let's move to our last featured storyteller. Uh, if you all have managed to regulate, has your, have your pulses gone back down and your, are you breathing normally again? We've allowed enough time to let the angels pass. All right, all these dead pencils, okay. All right, the man who now has the most introductions in this show, uh, holds the record for being introduced now for the beginning the third time. <laughs> Please welcome uh, a man who has been recording Boise, Chris Shanahan. So I've been recording a lot lately. 
and I'm seeing a lot of Boise for the first time. Um, I've been chasing around the geese and the squirrels at Julia Davis Park. Uh, I've been exploring the murals in Freak Alley. And I've been walking the trails and kind of finding all the ways around Platt Gardens at uh, the Boise Train Depot. And it's, Boise's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Um, I love getting to get out and explore it. I'm part of an audio-video production team. And some of the team is actually here tonight. And I just wanted to point them out. Maybe you could raise your hands. And uh, they're, they're great people, great people. Um, so we have a lot of different video projects that come our way. And our process is just to figure out who's gonna do what is we talk about the projects that we have on our, our plate and see who uh, wants to take a crack at one. And one of the projects that had been requested of us was from the Idaho Department of Corrections Division of Probation and Parole. And they asked if we would make a re-entry resources video for them. And the purpose was going to be for people who were leaving incarceration and re-entering the community. And I saw that and I thought, wow, this, this is an important video. This, this is a cool opportunity. I said, I want it. I'll take it. So I knew that I was going to need to coordinate with, with the department and that there would be a contact um, who was heading this up. And so I get, I get their information and it turns out to be this amazing clinician that I knew personally who I had worked with in the past uh, as part of a, a mentorship program in prison. And so I email her, I type her an email up, and uh, we agree that yes, we need to have a meeting with her and the rest of her team. So a couple weeks pass, jump in the truck, uh, punch in District 4 Probation and Parole Office in, in my phone, Google Maps it, and, and I'm on my way. So I get to the office and I meet six to seven very official looking Idaho Department of Correction employees, one of who I know very well and I, I consider a friend. We sit down and we make introductions and there's a few people, they're reentry specialists. There's another person who's a drug and alcohol rehabilitation specialist. There's a section supervisor whose job is to oversee the parole officers for people in this district. And I'm intimidated. Everybody in this room has a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, except for me. And so we, we start the conversation and, you know, I ask, you know, so what, what's your vision for this video? Who's our audience? What's the purpose that we want this video to serve? You know, I, I need to understand what, what you need and what you want from us. And we start talking and I share some ideas and pretty soon I realize that I'm actually guiding this conversation. And not too much longer, they're deferring to me and they're, they're saying, well, this is, this is your area. What do you think we should do? What, how should we make this video? What, what, what do we need to talk about? And I realize, like, I belong here. And it was an amazing feeling for me. And so we finish our conversation up. We have a good idea of where we want to go with things. And we wrap it up. So I knew that one of the places that I really wanted to highlight was the public library system. And so I am driving to every library that I can find. 
Um, I'm going to the library on Cole. I'm going to the library in Bowen Crossing. I'm going to the library downtown. And every library that I go into, I realize has its own unique personality. It has its own special thing that it offers, along with all the other amazing resources. You can't step in without seeing flyers for this resource, for this free class, um, the books, the laptops they check out to whoever it is that needs to use it, the free Wi-Fi. Uh, I'm, I'm always blown away. They're, they've got the most colorful, comfortable looking furniture, and it's just they're amazing places. And so I've kind of fallen in love with the public library system here. And I go to the main library downtown, and I, I walk in, and I, you know, I always ask for permission um, to film. I want to let them know what I'm doing. I don't want it, you know, just to look weird, make anybody uncomfortable. So I get the permissions that I need. I take all the footage. I, I, I'm taking video. I'm taking pictures. And um, I'm basically finished filming uh, inside. So I, I, I get outside. I'm next to my truck. And I'm taking pictures of the big library with exclamation point signs. And I'm like, I, I'm just into it. I'm geeking out over this. And all of a sudden, I, I hear this guy say, are you with the city? Do you work with the city? And uh, you know, I'm kind of startled. And, and I look over, and I say, no, no, I'm not. Why? And he says, well, we just noticed that you're taking pictures of all our security cameras. <laughs> and, uh, and instantly, I panic. I'm, I panic. And I'm thinking, they ran my plates. They called this in, <laughs> right? If my boss is here about this, it's going to ruin everything. Because for the record, I'm still incarcerated. And it's a pretty big deal that I get to get out and do what I'm doing. And a lot of this is being done for the very first time. And so actually last, last month, um, I actually started my 29th year of incarceration. I made a very terrible choice when I was 15 years old. I was a couple of months into the 10th grade and I earned myself a sentence of 35 years fixed, life indeterminate, which I'm still serving. So I've spent the last 20 plus years in a concrete box, inside of another concrete box, wrapped in razor wire, and I'm trying to learn how to live looking through a fishbowl. I'm watching TV, I'm hearing stories from other people, I'm trying to get every piece of information I can that tells me the world that, that I want to get back to and what I, what I need to do to, to survive in it, to live in it, to thrive in it. I've seen prison wine, I've seen tattoo guns, I've seen shanks, I've seen fights, I've seen beatings. And in all of that time, the two overwhelming fears that I walked away with were, fear, were the fears of talking to people, talking in front of people, and driving. And I'm serious. I'm like, the, those things terrified me. So I'm going to tell you about driving. <laughs> and um, so. I got an unexpected exception granted to me to go to minimum security. And in the minimum security facility that I was at, 
I got to work a job that offered the opportunity to get a driver's license. And before I came to prison, I loved driving. I was fearless. Uh, I, my dad would sit me in his lap. He'd let me steer, the, you know, the steering wheel. Uh, when I got a little older, I was known to joyride my grandpa's Cadillac in his truck a few times, and I loved it. But almost 30 years behind prison walls does a thing to you. That's all right. And my, my anxiety for driving was legit, right? It was, I would think about it when I wasn't even close to driving anywhere, and I would just, like, I'd get all worked up about it. But I knew that I needed to, I needed to take this opportunity. So, so I do, I study, I ace the written test, get to move on to my, my driving test. It's, it's actually close to this time last year. Weather's not super great, there's a lot of snow. I'm, I've got this really grumpy, crotchety uh, driving instructor who's yelling at me for pulling out the wrong way and you know, we're in the Albertsons parking lot. And uh, I found out that the turning lane isn't a suggestion. And I just remember in the book it said a solid line, you don't turn, you know? So anyway, it's not a suggestion, and I failed that test. Um, you know, kind of got back to it, and I took another crack at it. And I passed this time, and I said, yes, I'll take the eight-year license, please. Yeah, I don't want to do this again, right? <laughs> so, so I get my license, and that's great, but I'm still terrified to drive. And... At my facility, we have an amazing staff, um, and I'm part of a mentor team over there. And every opportunity that we went into the community, I got voluntold that I'm driving. <laughs> and I would plead, and I would say, look, I'll do this, but I'm pleading for everybody else's best interest, like, you really don't want me driving. And it didn't, it didn't matter, and so I drove. And I pushed through that anxiety of cars coming way too fast <laughs> towards me, way too close, the road's being way too narrow, and I'm not kidding, like I'm, I'm locked out, I'm, I'm white knuckling this thing, but I kept at it. And I'm working on this project for probably the last three months now, and I'm driving all over the place. Like I said, I'm driving to the libraries, I'm dri driving to the parks, driving downtown, and I'm sitting in traffic, and I'm watching all the cars go by, and I'm just imagining what life's going to be like when I'm actually out one day, which for me could potentially be next month. I have a big hearing coming up. And I realize I'm okay. I'm comfortable. And I have this wave of gratitude just wash over me for these amazing experiences that I've gotten that really unknown to me were preparing me for my potential reentry. And I, you know, I laugh all the time at the irony of what working on a reentry resources video for people paroling has done to help me prepare for mine. So yes, I am a man with a record. I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a mentor, I'm an audio video production apprentice, 
And as of tonight, I'm a storyteller. And we have a little message for a cause that is important to Chris and is also how I found him through an organization called the Idaho Prison Arts Collective. And here is a message from, well, I forgot who it's from. I choose to give to the Idaho Prison Arts Collective because I believe in their mission of providing opportunities for residents of the Idaho prison system to experience art forms that are healing. The programs offered are making an impact on many people's lives, dancing, painting, writing, music, mindfulness, and more. Thank you for this important work. Thank you. I think her name is Nancy. We'll just go with that. Oh, it's Angie. You're right. It is Angie. It's Angie Tate. Is she here? Angie Tate, are you here in the room? No. We... There she is. <laughs> All right, Ben, how many slammers do we have in the suitcase? One slammer. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, I guess it's not a big mystery to you, probably. Well, actually, it might be because we had another slammer that had to leave at intermission, right? Yep. All right, so this slammer is inside 10,000 Joys. Oh, very good. Uh, and it is going to be, oh, it has a little smiley face on the bottom with a sheepish grin, which goes with one of my favorite people, Patty O'Hara. <laughs> And you can still go to the slammer box if you want. And tell you what, Patty, hold on one second. I'm going to add an extra incentive. If there's someone here who really, they just need one little push, um, I have here from the record exchange a $50 gift card. And if someone goes over there and puts their name in the slammer hat so we have one more slam tonight, you'll get that gift card. Patty's going to go sit back down so she can put her... <laughs> So she can put her name back in. All right, Patty O'Hara. We had an unspoken rule in my house that my parents would never, ever call us at work. So the day that my mother called me several Novembers ago happened to be my father's 85th birthday called me at work, I knew something wasn't right. Oh, geez, Patty, you know, I got some bad news. Can you sign in Fargo? I'm just wondering how that works. I wonder, oh, geez, Patty, I've got some bad news for ya. Oh. <laughs> and it was bad news, by the way. The, the house burned down. And uh, we, 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 your, your dad and I were just kind of hoping you could come up here and maybe help us out. So yeah, I went up there. I, next day I took off, 
drove up to Madison and uh, pulled up in front of the old homestead, a mid-century, nice, just modest ranch home. And to look at the house, you wouldn't have any clue that there was a devastating fire two days earlier. There was no boarded up windows, no soot on the walls, or the paint wasn't peeling or anything. The only sign that something was amiss was the big empty dumpster in the driveway. So everything looked fine until I got out of the car and I approached the front door and that's when it hit me, that, that smell of a thousand campfires. It was as if there was a, a Boy Scout convention there the night before something, just bam! And, and then I could taste the smoke. It was, it was as if I was chewing on like a, a, a poker from a fireplace or something for the last 20 minutes. So just the, my senses were just on red alert. I opened the front door and it was another sensation, something very weird. I walked in and from the foyer, everything I saw from there was this monochromatic gray. And I would even call it a sludge. You could tell there was some thick coating everywhere on every surface that I could see, the ceiling, wall, furniture, floor, everything. It was like the set of a horror movie. You couldn't, it was a little disorienting to walk in because you didn't know if you were on the floor, or on the wall, or whatever. Everything was just all blended together, monochromatic gray. And something else hit me right away, and that is that the family dog wasn't there to greet me. My parents had uh, taken on a little fella, his name was Harpo, he had a little tuft on top of his head. He looked Harpo-like. And he was about the size of a, well, he, I think he was a cross between a, a squeaky toy and a, a woolly booger, those tumbleweeds that you find under your bed after about three months. He was about that big, too. And Harpo would normally, when I go to visit, he would be right there at the door to greet me, just kind of dancing and doing his little Harpo dance. He'd dance all the way to me. And, and then so you had to do the Harpo dance back at him. And so you just kind of, if you had a tail, you'd wag it. And his Harpo dance meant that he also didn't move his head when he danced. He'd come up to you and, and just his body would move. <laughs> And he'd just kind of, you know, do one of these things. So he's, and he'd make eye contact with one eye. He'd turn his head. And there's a painting of, I think it's a, um, it's either Bosch or Dolly. I think it's Dolly. There's a painting of a deer. And he's got this blue human eye that kind of looks out. Harpo had that. It was creepy. It was real creepy. And so like, I think I want to greet this dog. I'm not sure. Little, you know, kind of a poltergeist dog. And he would yip like a little squeaky toy when you'd meet him. Oh, and he also had another special gift he'd leave. If he really liked you, he'd leave a little gift on the floor, a little, a little happy Harpo piddle puddle. The, if you, you knew he liked you when that was there. And when Harpo stopped doing his happy Harpo dance, you stopped and everything was good. But Harpo didn't come to the door this time. So I, uh, I made my way through the house, avoided the, the part that uh, was all burned out and kind of made my way across this mooky floor to the backyard where my parents were. They were talking to the insurance adjuster and uh, they confirmed that in fact Harpo had passed away 
He didn't make it. My parents had gone off on an errand, it turned out. They put him in his little comfort cage while they were gone, locked it. And the fire started underneath in the basement where Harpo was, and so he didn't make it. The firemen did give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, which is just such a, a sweet vision to have. So anyway, the adjuster's there, and he's got a stack of papers. He said, let's get to work a stack of empty papers, and there are 20 lines on each of those pages. And he said, okay, here's what you're going to do for the next how long ever it takes. You're going to inventory, record everything in this house that is going to go into that dumpster, things that are not salvageable. I need to know how many and what the item is and the value. Give an estimate. That's fine. Well, about, it took about three days. We're going through everything in that house. Somehow this sludge hit everything plastic. Even, it even went into the cupboards and into the drawers. Any utensils that had plastic on them was coated in this sludge. I know what it is now, and I won't go into that, but there was a reason for it, but it was, it was, it was just everywhere. So needless to say, that dumpster filled fast. The furniture, some couldn't be salvaged. Photos, family heirlooms. There were some, some very sad moments. You can't get that off a Polaroid photo, so that history is lost. A couple oil paintings couldn't be salvaged from my grandfather. But we finished the job. At the end of, I think it was almost a week that I was there, in and out with them, and we filled pages and pages of things, estimated value. Boy, it's a great, it's great for you to not ever go buy things anymore. You think of that fire and having to record stuff. So I'm cured of that. We handed in these sheets, this clipboard, to the adjuster, and uh, he was very proud of us. We were very proud of it, and looking for some closure. And he said, okay, well, that wraps it up. We'll haul things away. And as he was leaving, he took a sheet of paper and put it on top of that stack. It was a sheet from the first day that we were talking. And I said, well, what's that? I, you know, we didn't, did you put something in the dumpster that we didn't know about? No, 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 this didn't go in the dumpster. It's just the cover sheet. It's just from the first day. I said, can I take a look? I'd like to just, you know, for the record. And he handed me the, the clipboard with that sheet on it. And it had one item of all those 20 spaces filled. It was quantity one, description, family pet. In parentheses, Harpo. <coughs> Estimated value was blank. I said, can I borrow a pen? And I filled in, in parentheses, underestimated value, priceless. And after Harpo, I forgot to tell you, his nickname was Mr. Sprinkles. <laughs> in parentheses, Mr. Sprinkles. And I gave it back to him and said, for the record, thank you. See, the lights are also red because of the burning house. It all makes sense. All right, Slimer Booth, I, don't, I didn't detect any motion going over there, but did somebody sneak their name in? Oh, you have something in your hand. You're not, you're not joking with me? There really is something in your hand? This is... It says Jody. It says Jody. It's, it's Angie Tate. No, it isn't. That was... <laughs> 
Okay, good. Well, congratulations. Uh, this person is going to be our last slam tonight. But we've heard a lot of different ways of recording stories. And um, one of another way that we record stories is in a book, and I'm uh, both excited and, and a little nervous to say that I am releasing my first book, uh, Audience of One, Stories of Stage, Screen, and Solitude. <laughs> and the, the cover artist who did such an amazing job is also our designer for all the Story Story Night posters and designs, the videos, and the... And the uh, big billboards that you see, Julia Green. Julia Green doesn't get to come here all the time, but she's here tonight. Julia, will you stand up for a second just so we can say thank you for your designs? She's over there. Thank you. The Story Story postcard. She does the cute little sheep for late night. Um, so this is a so part of my culture of giving, I guess, is that 40% uh, uh, of the sales from these from this book goes to Story Story Night. Uh, so you're able to pre-order that with your tickets if you're coming back in December. And also, um, I think we'll we'll actually have it's been the most bizarre release. I like let seven go tonight and and then said no more. <laughs> so next time I'll be a little more generous and um, have, well have 14 to go for our 14th season. And right now. Coming to the stage to close us out is Keeter Holton. I just heard $50 gift card to record exchange and thought of my vinyl collection. My selective hearing didn't hear the part about I have to go now. Uh, so um, I grew up with my lovely mother back there, always taking pictures of everything. Everything was always recorded in a photo. There was never really videos with our family, but it was always photos. And so naturally, growing up, I wanted to be a photographer. I used to look through our albums, and it was always amazing reminiscing on all the times in those pictures. I used to go down to my great-grandma's house in Utah and see all of these amazing pictures um, from the amazing life she lived. She, lived to be 102 and traveled the world twice, basically. She was amazing. And so I took pictures nonstop growing up and my mom got me this super nice camera. I took all the photography classes I could. When I went into high school, They, because I had taken all the uh, photography classes in middle school and did so well, they let me go up to the like end of photography in high school, but keep taking it. And so, I got kind of a hot head about my photography. But um, I knew I was pretty good and I could handle it. And uh, my lacrosse coach at the time had, his sister was getting married. And they asked me if I would shoot their wedding. And I'd never shot a wedding and I didn't really like posed pictures. My favorite part about photography was capturing a moment that nobody was posing for. I wanted to capture them in their true, like, true self or like nature, or that's what I liked about shooting sports, because um, there's no do-overs, there's no posing it. And so I shot this wedding, I thought I did all right, and any photographers know when you shoot a shoot for somebody, you don't give them all the pictures. You give them the best of the pictures, you're representing yourself the best you can, and you're hopefully representing their, um, their moment the best that you can. And so I give them the flash drive of all the pictures that I had selected. Um, and I said, you can narrow it down to the ones you'd like. 
and they didn't really get back to me. And then I talked to them later on, and they wanted all of the pictures. And I said, well, I can't do that because all the pictures, there's some pretty terrible ones in there. Like, you don't want the, all of them. And so then a little bit back and forth, and they ended up getting really upset with me and really more and more and more upset with me. And finally, they told me that I ruined their wedding. And they would never forget this because now they don't have any good pictures and they wanted all the pictures and it was my fault and that I had ruined their special day. So naturally I did what any adult does and I gave up on what I wanted to do. <laughs> I stopped taking pictures completely because it just, I couldn't handle knowing I ruined someone's wedding. Like it was terrible. Um, so I didn't take pictures for a lot of years and then actually it was about a year and a half ago I went to a music festival and I was like you know what screw it I'm gonna take what I grew up taking pictures on uh, little disposable film cameras those are my favorite thing with my mom and so I took them and the best part about those everybody that knows is forgetting the pictures that you took and then seeing them two or three weeks later and so I took like four or five of them and all of our friends took pictures and everybody was elated and they were all so excited with how they turned out. And I felt that rush of feeling of why I originally loved taking pictures. So we did it again. And this time we went to a music festival last fall and people are pushing through the crowd being rude. And we were getting so over it. And we had the joke with our friends that we would surprise them with the flash and everybody knows how bright those are. Really bright. So we were at the back of the crowd and every single person that would barge past us or bump into us or push us out of the way or was just being absurdly rude to us, we started tapping them on the shoulder and putting the camera about this far from their face and getting them. And we got some pretty nasty remarks. It was, but it was warranted. One girl actually fell over. I felt a little bad about that. But don't push us, you know? We're in our own group, so it was fun but yeah it's it was interesting getting back into photography and feeling that feeling again so yeah that's my story thank you for listening if you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them this entire show is available on the story story night youtube channel Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive funding from the Boise City Department of Arts and History. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Shandro Group. This show is sponsored by The Record Exchange. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Our guest musician was Landonius. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message or click the Stories tab on our website. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Come to a live show and pick up a copy of my new book, Audience of One, Stories of Stage, Screen, and Solitude. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 